Hi, WorkWell listeners. I'm really excited to share that my book, Work Better Together, is officially out. Conversations with WorkWell guests and feedback from listeners like you inspired this book. It's all about how to create a more human-centered workplace. And as we return to the office for many of us, this book can help you move forward into post-pandemic life with strategies and tools to strengthen your relationships and focus on your well-being. It's available now from your favorite book retailer. When you think about success in your job, what do you think about? Meeting deadlines? Outperforming targets? Fixing systematic issues? All of these may point to high performance, but they fall short of some of the vital, yet often overlooked ways we should be measuring success. Like meaning in the work we do, how we positively impact other people in our job, and even our own happiness. This is the WorkWell podcast series, live from the World Happiness Summit in Miami, Florida. Hi, I'm Jen Fisher, Chief Wellbeing Officer for Deloitte, and I'm so pleased to be here with you today to talk about all things well-being. I'm here with Dr. Tal Ben-Shahar. He's an internationally renowned teacher and author in the fields of happiness and leadership. He taught two of the most popular courses in Harvard's history, Positive Psychology and the Psychology of Leadership. He also taught happiness studies at Columbia University. His books have appeared on bestseller lists around the world and have been translated into more than 30 languages. He's also the co-founder of the Happiness Studies Academy, as well as the creator and instructor of the Certificate in Happiness Studies and the Happier School programs. Tal, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Thank you. Tell us about yourself, who you are, and then obviously how you became passionate about happiness. <laughs> so I'll actually start with how I became passionate about okay. happiness. <laughs> uh, it was because of my own unhappiness. I was uh, a student at Harvard studying computer science, and I found myself in my second year doing well academically, doing well in athletics. I played squash, I was on the team, uh, doing quite well socially and yet being very unhappy. And it didn't make sense to me because, you know, I looked at my life from the outside and things looked great. You know, I checked the boxes and yet from the inside, it didn't feel that way. I remember um, waking up on very cold Boston morning, going to my academic advisor and telling her that I'm switching majors. She said, what to? And I said, well, I'm leaving computer science, moving over to philosophy and psychology. <laughs> and she said, why? And I said, because I have two questions. Why aren't I happy? And how can I become happier? And these are the uh, questions that have guided me for the past 30 years or so, as I've been uh, a student and a teacher of happiness. So tell us, what is happiness? And is it something that we're born with? Is it something we can learn? Um, so the answer is yes. <laughs> I thought that might be the case. Yeah, as, uh, you know, as, as is the answer for the nature-nurture uh, yeah. question. Um, uh, on average, and this is what the research shows, on average, 50% of our happiness levels are dependent on uh, genes and very early experiences. In other words, things that we have zero control over. On average, 50%, which is a lot. 10% uh, on average... Uh, has to do with uh, external circumstances. The remaining 40% on average choices that we make. Now, I emphasized on average because it varies, of course. You know, you, so external circumstances don't matter that much on average. However, 
a person who lives in a war zone today, uh, of course their happiness levels are going to be impacted by more than 10%. Or a person living in dire poverty, of course more than 10%. But on average, when basic needs for food, shelter, security are, are met, 10%. Then we have um, 50% uh, genetic or early experiences. However, individuals who were uh, abused when they were very young, of course, their happiness levels are going to be affected. Or we had an extraordinarily supportive childhood. Their happiness uh, is going to be affected by more than 50%. Same with choices. And here lies the importance of the science of, of happiness. Because what increases the part of the pie that choices are responsible for, what increases that is being mindful of those choices that we have. You know, if, if, if I ask, you know, so tell me, is, um, do, do you want to be grateful and appreciative of the good things in your life and the good people in your life? Or do you want to take them for granted? <laughs> now, I mean, who would say the latter, right? Mm -hmm. So it's a rhetorical choice, and yet, and yet most people most of the time do not appreciate the good things in their lives, and they take the things for granted until something happens. Um, so what we need to do in order to make the right rhetorical choices is we need reminders, and the science of happiness is there to remind us, to help us create rituals around the important choices in our lives, whether it's appreciation, whether it's regular exercise, whether it's kindness and generosity, um, whether it's uh, our undivided attention when we're with other people. All these, th these choices contribute to happiness. And first and foremost, we need to make them. So tell me, is there a definition in science of what happiness is? Because I think there's probably lots of definitions. Yeah, probably of, around 8 billion of them. <laughs> <laughs> so what's you, what, when you talk about happiness, what are you talking about? Yeah, so um, you know, what, what I've tried to do in my work is uh, integrate and, and synthesize the, the thoughts of uh, the, the great researchers and thinkers from today, from the past, East and West. And I've uh, essentially come up with happiness as comprising five elements. And the five elements are spiritual well-being, physical well-being, intellectual well-being, relational well-being, and emotional well-being. These five conveniently make up the acronym SPIRE. Um, spiritual, physical, intellectual, relational, and emotional. And each of them is an important element of happiness. And this does not mean that we need to have it all all the time, but it does mean that each one of them is important at some point. And so is, I guess, is happiness a state or is it fleeting? Does it come and go? <laughs> yeah, no, that, that, that's a great question. And again, it goes back to definition. So there are some people who define happiness as essentially pleasure. And then, yes, we experience the ups and downs, the vicissitudes of life. And, and then, yes, it comes and goes. Um, my definition of happiness in that it includes the, def the five spire elements, that it's something that is more uh, stable and lasting, which also means that part of a happy life is experiencing sadness and frustration and, and disappointment. And in fact, one of the most important pillars of happiness is embracing these painful emotions when they arise. You know, um, my, 
some of my students, especially the younger ones, would come to me after about a month into the into the class, and they would say, "Tal, you know, we, we, we really like this field of uh, happiness studies, you know, the science of well-being. Uh, we're even thinking of doing more work in this area, but we're a little bit concerned." And and I asked them, "How come?" And they say, um, you know, because you often talk about the importance of struggles and failure and, uh, and experiencing hardships. But what if we become so good at the science of happiness that we don't experience those, uh, you know, uh, uh, hardships and difficulties and, and challenges? And I always have the same response. I always say to them, don't worry, <laughs> life will take care of you. Life always takes care of us. And, you know, these are... And, and again, they are difficult when they happen, of course, but these are essential experiences and inevitable experiences for living a full and fulfilling life. Yeah, I, I, my father told me that uh, you, can't, you can't actually know what happiness is until you know what sadness. You have to, you have to feel both in order exactly to Exactly right. Yeah. And you know, if you think about it uh, epistemologically, meaning through how we gain knowledge, if the whole world was blue, there would be no blue. We know what it is because there are contrasting colors. So you teach happiness and you believe obviously that it's an important discipline to teach. Why, why is that? How did that come about? You know, <laughs> Professor Martin Seligman, who's the founder mm-hmm. of uh, the field of positive psychology, when he speaks with uh, parents and teachers, uh, often begins with uh, two questions. The first question is, um, what would you like for your children? And, um, and parents, teachers respond, well, we want them to be happy. We want them to have good relationships. We want them to be resilient, uh, healthy, and so on, kind. And, and then he says, okay, so this is list number one. He actually writes it down on the board. And then on the other side, he says, okay, list number two, question number two. What do children learn in school? And of course, the three R's come up, reading, writing, arithmetic, and geography, and history. Now, there's almost no overlap between the two lists. Now, it doesn't mean that the second list is unimportant. It's very important. However, why are we almost entirely ignoring the first list that is so fundamental, so primal, so basic to what we want as human beings for ourselves and for the people we care about? Now, 30 years ago, if people said, well, we, we're not teaching these things, they would have had a good excuse because we didn't really have a science of well-being. Today, there's no excuse. We know how to teach happiness. We know how to increase levels of well-being. We know how to improve relationships, cultivate resilience, and help people overcome uh, hardships and flourish. So, and, if, and moreover, if schools teach these things, Students will not just be happier and physically healthier, they'll also be better students. So um, increasing levels of happiness also improves performance, whether it's at school or in the workplace. So when you first proposed a teaching a course on this, what was the response? You know, so <laughs> I actually didn't know that at the time, but um, the head of the department came into my class. I did not I did not see her, but she was sitting all the way in the back, apparently, um, because she heard that a class is being taught on happiness and some people were, were, were questioning whether, you know, Harvard ought to offer a class like that to so many students. 
And she sat there for one class and she told uh, her colleagues that um, she doesn't need to go to another class, that she's very glad um, this science is being taught in the classroom. So um, she was uh, convinced by the, by, by the science and also, of course, by the importance of teaching these ideas at the university. So let's talk about the modern world and technology. <laughs> it's all around us. How is it impact? Does it impact our ability to be happy? Uh, big time. You know, there was uh, research done by Jean Twangy. She's from uh, San Diego. And uh, her research looked at teenagers and well-being. And what she found and, and what we know is that um, in the five years prior to COVID, levels of depression among teenagers has gone up by over 30%. Suicide rates went up by the same margin. During COVID, things actually have been getting worse. So things are not looking good. Now, when Jean Twenge and her colleagues looked at why or asked the question why, and they combed through the data to better understand the phenomenon of increased depression as well as suicide, they came up with one conclusion. And I quote, the ascendance of the smartphone. When kids became quite literally addicted to the screen. Now, I'm not against technology. I'm not against screens. I think that I'm not against social media. I think it's wonderful. I mean, the fact that people are hearing us now mm -hmm. is thanks to technology. You know, I recently met my best friend from when we were 12 years old, thanks to social media. Mm -hmm. um, however, it has become an addiction for so many uh, adults and so many children, and it's exacting an incredibly high price in terms of mental health. We have to go back to more face-to-face, in-person interaction with undivided attention. We need to go back to a more active lifestyle. You know, when I when I grew up, we used to play outdoors. Outside. You know, we, outside <laughs> go we out and play. <laughs> go out and play. We play soccer, you know, and, and until, you know, mom called us uh, for, for dinner. Whereas today, most children, most of the time, are sitting down and... Uh, you know, moving their fingers, and, and that just doesn't cut it when it comes to the amount of exercise that you need. So how do we get there? Well, so this is the responsibility of, uh, of schools that need to educate to, towards this, and it's, of course, the responsibility of parents who also need to be educated. So, you know, I'm an educator, so my, my answer is, is bias, um, though governments also have a responsibility. You know, very often what you measure is, is what gets done, whether you're talking about a, a small organization or a big organization like a country. So governments need to measure just as they measure GDP, uh, GNP, they need to measure GNH, gross national happiness. Um, and again, I'm not saying you shouldn't measure gross national product. Of course, economic uh, measures are important and they're indicative of, uh, of a culture's or a country's well-being. And we should not ignore uh, psychological, less tangible, though equally important measures. And is your belief, and I think the science backs this up, is if we do measure gross, gross national happiness, that it will have a positive outcome on 
GMP as well? Um, it will absolutely have a positive outcome because the most important factors today in the workplace are what? There are things like innovation. They are things like teamwork. Um, there are things like engagement. You know, Daniel Goleman calls our age at the age of distraction. Mm -hmm. So these are all so important for productivity in the workplace. And these are specifically the things that increased levels of well-being will, will bring about. Now, the interesting thing is, and what we see in research, is that the change doesn't have to be radical. So even if you increase levels of well-being by three, four, five percent, not a lot, doable, you will see significant increase in, in creativity, in engagement, in teamwork, in productivity and performance. So let's talk about the workplace, um, because you know, especially now, um, you know, the, the great resignation, the great reevaluation, whatever you want to call it, you know, so much of what is being said about that has to do with people kind of reevaluating the role that well-being and happiness plays in their life and whether or not the workplace is helping or hurting that. Yeah. You know, more and more people as a result of COVID are thinking about uh, the important questions mm -hmm. in life, which are, you know, is it meaningful to me? Or how can I increase my happiness? Or what has this got to do with my well-being? And asking this question, they naturally um, look for a different experience at work. So it's no longer enough for them to just make enough money or even a lot of money. Right. They, they're looking for more. They're looking for a sense of meaning and purpose. So in a way, what uh, society has experienced is a, a great awakening mm -hmm. um, where they want to embark on a different quest. And how does a quest begin? Through questions. And that's what they're asking now. I like that. So how does the workplace respond to that? Well, you know, necessity is the mother of invention, right? <laughs> so uh, market forces are going to compel um, managers, leaders to look into these uh, ideas and, um, and to look towards the science of happiness for, for some, not all, but some of the answers. You know, uh, I, I always used to say before, before COVID, before <laughs> the great resignation, that... Um, that um, leaders, managers need to think about bringing happiness to the workplace, not just because it's a nice thing and you should bring it for, you know, your, uh, your Christmas or end of the year party, uh, but also because creativity, productivity, performance will improve. And yet it was not a necessity. It's not a to, leadership competency. To, yeah. today, today it is. Yeah. Today, it's no longer a, a nice thing to have. Yeah, or they call it soft skills, which I don't like because there's nothing, they're actually the hardest skills of all of them. <laughs> yes, you know, the, the, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's exactly that. And we also know that these soft skills are better predictors of individual, team, and organizational success than the traditional hard skills. Mm -hmm. So what do you say to an individual that comes to you that is feeling unhappy or believes that they're unhappy, what, what should they do with their mm. life, with their work? Yeah. So the first thing um, that I emphasize, and again, whether it's to, to an individual coming to me or to my students, is that the, the, the science of happiness is not a panacea. And there are some 
situation some individuals who need you know professional help from psychotherapy or psychiatry um, at the same time even psychotherapists and psychiatrists would benefit a great deal from introducing some of the findings um, that come from the science of happiness for example we know that regular physical exercise has the same effect on our psychological well-being as our most powerful psychiatric medication. In fact, it works in the same way, releasing norepinephrine, serotonin, dopamine, the feel-good chemicals in the brain. So um, that would, I must say, after asking for their name, if I were a therapist, <laughs> that would be my first question. Are you moving? Are you exercising? And if you're not, how can you start to, to do so? Um, in addition, are you spending quality time with people you care about and who care about you? You know, 400 or so years ago, Francis Bacon, the British philosopher, wrote, friendship doubles joy and cuts grief in half. Now, I don't know if it exactly doubles and exactly <laughs> halves, um, but it's close to it. And we have a lot of research showing that the number one predictor of happiness mm -hmm. is quality time you spend with people you care about and who care ab about you. And the quality time means time with undivided attention. So not being distracted, distracted mm -hmm. at the same time, being present. Speaking of presence, mindfulness meditation, if that's your thing, um, introduce it into your life if you're not already doing it. And it doesn't have to be you know, two hours of sitting meditation a day. It could be you know, three minutes in the morning of centering, deep breathing. Uh, it could be maybe a, a, a short yoga class twice a week. And these interventions can go a long way. Appreciation. You know, my, my favorite word in English is the word appreciate because it has two meanings. The first meaning of the word appreciate is to say thank you for something, and that's a nice thing to do, even moral thing. The second meaning of the word appreciate is to grow in value, as the economy appreciates or money in the bank appreciates. And the two meanings are intimately um, connected, because when you appreciate the good in your life, the good appreciates. I love that. I had not heard that before. That's great. <laughs> Why don't doctors prescribe these things more then? <laughs> yeah, you know, the, the, the reason why doctors uh, don't prescribe <laughs> these things is because um, they're not um, prescribed or given to them by, by companies that uh, convince them that they are good, that show them the signs that they are good. So many doctors are actually not aware of some very basic uh, research done in the field of um, of well-being. So it's not taught in medical school? Not enough. You know, many of our students at the Happiness Studies Academy are medical doctors, mm -hmm. are uh, professors in medical school, and they are teaching these things. And they are asking, why wasn't I taught this when I was in school? So, um, so these things are becoming better known. You mentioned rituals before and how important they are in terms of, you know, us cultivating our own well-being and happiness. Can you talk about that? You know, I, I often ask my students to put their hand up if they have fulfilled all their New Year's resolutions that they had set to date or birthday resolutions or whatever. Uh, hardly anyone, you know, and I've asked this to thousands of people, hardly anyone puts their hand up. 
And then I asked them to put their hand down. And I have a second question, which is, did you brush your teeth this morning? And uh, of course, they all put their hand up. Now, the reason why so few of us fulfill our New Year's resolutions and all of us brush our teeth is because, the f because brushing our teeth is a ritual, whereas fulfilling New Year's resolutions relies on self-discipline. To bring about change, we cannot rely on self-discipline or willpower because we have very little of it. It's not consistent. It's unreliable. Whereas when it comes to rituals, these, these are our automatic behaviors, our habits. They are relatively easy to persist with. Uh, John Dryden, a British poet, wrote, we first make our habits and then our habits make us. <laughs> and um, the challenge is to make those habits. So we need to identify one or two healthy habits that we want to introduce in our lives. For example, um, uh, regular exercise, or it could be regular appreciation and a gratitude journal like Oprah prescribes, <laughs> or, um, or it could be um, a weekly date with my partner, whatever it is, but choose one or two, not more, and then introduce them once and then twice and then 50 times until they become a ritual, a habit. And once that is a habit, then we can move on to the next one and use the very little willpower that we do have for <laughs> cultivating the next one. But it has to be done gradually, slowly. So 50 days or 50 times. Well, so it, it, it depends. I was going to say, I've, the, heard, I've heard 21 exactly. days, I've heard 50 days, I've heard... Good. <laughs> so the reason you heard 21 days is because William James in 1890 wrote about it, and that sort of became the, the gold standard. Um, then there is research that shows that even after 14 days, you actually see some uh, um, neural pathways mm -hmm. being formed, and that is a sign of a, a ritual. But sometimes it takes three months or even longer. It depends on how difficult the ritual is to implement. It depends if we have to do away with an existing uh, ritual mm. um, and, and put something in its stead, in its place, and then it may take longer. So kind of getting rid of a bad habit exactly. and replacing it with a good one. Exactly. So, so it depends. But, but when, when a ritual is in place, you know it, you feel it. It simply means you, don't, you no longer need willpower. I don't need any willpower to brush my teeth. I just do it. Uh, today, I don't need any willpower to go to the gym because it's, 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 it's a habit. Right. It is making me do it. I know when I don't go to the gym, it's... I feel it. Exactly. And, and that's a sign yeah. that your neural pathways mm -hmm. have been formed. Yeah. Yeah. So you also talk and write a lot about perfection. <laughs> um, and as somebody, I, I'm, I guess I'm a self-proclaimed recovering mm. perfectionist. So how does striving for perfection impact our happiness and just kind of talk about the psychology? Yeah. You know, I, I end my book on perfectionism by saying, my name is Tallinn, I'm a perfectionist. <laughs> so uh, yes, I'm, I'm in recovery too. And um, you know, when we talk about perfectionism, we need to talk about two types of perfectionism. There is what psychologists call adaptive perfectionism, and there is maladaptive perfectionism. So you know, when we're interviewed, or many of us are interviewed, and we're asked, so what is your weakness? And, and, and so many people say, oh, it's perfectionism, um, by which they mean, I'm so responsible and you can count on me, I'll always do it, even if I have to stay up all night. That's not what is meant by the perfection, the, the maladaptive perfectionism. Maladaptive perfectionism really hurts. It hurts us, it hurts our uh, loved ones, 
um, it's, um, it's, it's, it's a very painful neurosis, as Karen Horney describes it. So um, what is it? It's about an intense fear of failure, an inability to deviate in any way from the straight and narrow. Why? Because deviation from the straight and narrow means I'm no longer perfect, means I have failed, means um, I'm not good enough. And living with that uh, hurts us on many levels. First of all, we're less likely to take risks, to experiment. And how do we learn best about ourselves, about the world? Through experimentation. Uh, second, it's, uh, it's a relationship killer because um, if I'm a perfectionist, then I don't want to hear that I'm imperfect, that something is perhaps wrong, that I have not done something um, at the highest level. And every um, disagreement is an assault on, my, on the perfect image I would like to, to maintain. None would like, I have to maintain of myself. So it hurts relationships because we're very defensive. I know this is where I paid the highest price as a perfectionist. Um, it also means that we walk around constantly with a, a sense of dread because, um, you know, the, the, the imposter syndrome, for example, is a derivative of that. Procrastination is a derivative of perfectionism because we don't want to start because if we start, we may fail. And um, so we pay a price professionally, personally, in every domain. And the question is, what do we do with it? when we uh, recognize it. And recognizing it is an important first step. Well, what we do about it is we give ourselves more opportunities to fail, initially small ones, and then bigger and bigger ones, get out of our comfort zone. And initially it will be uh, very, extremely difficult, you know, pulling ourselves up by the, by the bootstraps. But over time, uh, we'll be able to do more and more of it. We'll get used to failing. We'll get used to being imperfect. And then we'll realize, you know, the world has not come to an end. The people who love us still love us. And then we learn to love ourselves as well, a little bit more and a little bit more. And over time, we transform. And when I talk about transform, I mean it literally, not metaphorically. It means changing the form of the way our brain functions in the face, face of risk, failure, or imperfection in general. So the, you know, the theme of the World Happiness Summit this year is resilience. Um, talk about happiness and resilience and how leading a, living a life of happiness can help build and sustain your resilience. Yeah, so... Um, with your permission, I'll talk about Resilience 2.0. Sure. Uh, because, you know, today to be cool, you have to talk about 2.0, <laughs> right? So, well, we want to be cool, so let's talk about exactly it. Exactly <laughs> my point. <laughs> um, so Resilience 1.0 is about uh, bouncing back. It's actually a term taken from engineering. Um, you take a certain material or, um, you know, a piece of rubber and you squish it. If it's resilient it goes back to its original form once you let go of the pressure and stress or a ball bounces back to where it was before if it's resilient. Resilience 2.0 is about bouncing back higher. It's about putting pressure on a system and the system growing stronger, bigger, better as a result of the, of the pressure and stress. Um, this is a concept that was introduced by Nassim Taleb from New York University when he talked about anti-fragility. 
which is the opposite of fragility, and that's resilience 2.0, growing stronger as a result of stress. And there are anti-fragile systems all around us and within us. For example, our muscular system. You go to the gym, you put break stress on your muscles, <laughs> you break down, and then you grow stronger, bigger, healthier over time. We also find it in psychology that uh, some people are able to bounce back from failure, not just to where they were before, but bounce back higher, to actually grow stronger as a result of hardships and difficulties. And the science of happiness is all about creating anti-fragile systems, psychologically speaking. It's all about teaching us certain practices, certain interventions that will help us become more anti-fragile, more resilient 2.0. I that like was that. cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and if I can add to that, it's things like um, cultivating relationships. Yeah, they, of course, they make us feel better in good times. And having strong, supportive relationships can help us grow through hardship. Um, if we uh, express gratitude, of course, gratitude makes us feel better in good times. And in difficult times... It's even more important. Even more important. Because when you appreciate the good, the good appreciates. Mm -hmm. I like that. So how do you prioritize happiness in your life? What does that look like for you? We know exercise. <laughs> so I exercise uh, religiously. You know, people ask me, so what are you doing differently now during COVID? Um, and, and I say, I do the same things, only more of them. So I exercise three times a week. Normally during COVID, I've upped it to five times a week. Um, when I wake up, in the morning, the, the first thing that I do is take a few deep breaths and center. And just these few deep breaths actually make a big difference um, rather than just getting up and getting into you know, action. Um, in, uh, in addition, I do prioritize time with, um, with my family and friends. At home, we have no technology zones, and these are both in time and place. So when we have dinner, for instance, there's, there's no phone. You know, if one of the kids is out of the house and we're expecting them to call, then, then yes, the phone is on the side. Um, but other than that, there is no technology around the table. We're just there. Um, then there, um, there is, you know, I do my gratitudes every night. I've been doing gratitudes every night religiously since the 19th of September, 1999. Wow, so before it was now, popular. <laughs> well, so why 19th of September, 1999? Because that is when Oprah told mm. me to do it. Okay. Uh, on one of her shows, she talked about a gratitude her journal. Her reach is far and wide. <laughs> yeah, and exactly. And I thought, wow, that's a great idea. And I started doing it. And four years later, in 2003, the first study on gratitude caught up with mm -hmm. Oprah, mm -hmm. showing just how helpful and beneficial it is. That's funny. That's great. So, and if I can pry a little bit, you increased your exercise during COVID from three days to five days. Is, is that because you had more time or is that because in times that are more difficult, we need to increase yeah, our... Absolutely the, the latter. Uh, because, uh, you know, I, I often ask my, my, my students, so what are the times when you're least likely to exercise? And most of them say exams, because they don't have the time. And I tell them these are the times that it's most important. And, and as you put it, it's about prioritizing. You know, if I had a meeting with my boss and my boss wanted to see me three times a week or five times a week, I'd be there because it's a priority. No less a priority to, to make these uh, commitments, have these meetings 
for self-cultivation, especially given that self-cultivation also leads to helping others. Yeah. Well, in a world that's constantly disrupted, I think uh, focusing on our <laughs> our self-care and our resilience and our own well-being is the most important thing we can do for ourselves and everyone else. You know, uh, 2,500 years ago, Confucius said that if you want to bring harmony to your state, you need to first bring harmony to your neighborhood. To bring harmony to your neighborhood, you first need to bring harmony to your family. To bring harmony to your family, you must start with the self. Creating thus these concentric circles, and these concentric circles start with self-cultivation, and then they go out. So, you know, when people say to me, you know, pursuing happiness, that's a, a selfish pursuit. And my response to that is, it's not a selfish pursuit, nor is it a selfless pursuit. It's a self-full pursuit. Because when we pursue happiness, we're increasing our own well-being. And by extension, because happiness is contagious, because we become more generous and kind when we're happier, it's also about helping others. We're all interconnected in this web of empathy. I love that. I can't think of a better note to end this discussion on. So thank you for your time today. That was so full of wisdom and action and I'm grateful. Thank you. Thank you. I am too. <laughs> I'm so grateful Tal could be with us today to talk about happiness. Thank you to our producers, Rivet360, and our listeners. You can find the WorkWell podcast series on Deloitte.com, or you can visit various podcatchers using the keyword WorkWell, all one word, to hear more. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe so you get all of our future episodes. If you have a topic you'd like to hear on the WorkWell podcast series, or maybe a story you would like to share, please reach out to me on LinkedIn. My profile is under the name Jen Fisher, or on Twitter at JenFish23. We're always open to your recommendations and feedback. And of course, if you like what you hear, please share, post, and like this podcast. Thank you and be well.